You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Thank You for Your Servers, a show which looks at the tech news of today, but from a libertarian perspective. Now here is your host, Thaddeus Preston, a.k.a. Nick Way. Thank you for logging into Thank You for Your Servers. I'm Thaddeus Preston, a.k.a. Nick Way. Follow me on Twitter at Nick Way. Gary lists again this episode about tech topics, but uh, we'll push this on. And we'll keep doing what we do until Gary Guthrie is back into the warm embrace of thank you for your service. But this and other podcasts are brought to you by Make Liberty Great Again Network of Podcasts. Let's make Liberty Great Again, fam. And with no further ado, let's get into this episode's topic du jour. Let's take a break from the things that divide us and that are silly. Let's put aside black scientists call out racism in their institution stories and Black Lives Matter activism. Let's table the discussion on the COVID-19 craziness. Let's focus this week on the future that is still being built while the world around us appears to be burning. If you want my commentary on all this nonsense, in my opinion, listen to episode 49 of the MLGA podcast, the flagship podcast of the Make Liberty Great Again Network where myself and Kim, a.k.a. The Lesbertarian, and Cam Harless discuss in-depth what us two token black people think of this. And it's a good conversation. We chopped it up real nice. And yeah, you know, you'll just get my thoughts on that. But I, I wanted to take a break away from, like, the angry rants about the poisonous culture and how terrible the tech press is, because the tech press has become pretty unbearable right now. Um, they are reporting on the good stories that seem to be happening, but they seem to be getting into a lot of activism um, that black scientists call out racism in their institutions is an actual story. But while I probably might be empathetic to some of their plight, I don't care. I don't care because ultimately, when all this is said and done, and the smoldering ruins are swept away, and the statues are removed, and racism is wiped from the face of the earth, ha ha, um, the future will have been greatly transformed because while some of us are out there being activists others of us are on the grind building the future and part of the rant from the last episode about just build the goddamn future stems from the fact that like it doesn't matter what we seem to be doing and how tumultuous things are and how um economically uh, how much economic destruction is barreling at us because of what we've done for COVID-19 and the subsequent unrest in our cities. Because when it's all said and done, as I've always said, and I've said for maybe a couple of episodes, we're going to come out of the other end of this on some Star Trek shit. Because people are still kind of building the future. And this is going to be very, very important for labor, for even activists going forward. But enough ranting there in the opening monologue if you can call that a monologue, but the whole show honestly is a monologue right now without my, without my boy Gary, but headline here, Facebook's transcoder AI converts code from one programming language to another. 
Very impressive stuff going on here. And this and the other subsequent stories I will discuss are part of a series of stories that are they're going to change an industry, um, probably for the better, but that is being built regardless. So some highlights from the first story in the queue. Facebook's transcoder AI converts code from one programming language into another. Byline Kyle Wiggers from the, from the Venture Beat, which is probably one of the few sites I go to for refuge during these times. Story highlights here. Researchers say they have developed what they call a neural transcompiler, a system that converts code from one high-level programming language like C++, Java, and Python into another. So migrating existing code bases uh, to modern and more efficient programming languages like Java and C++, I would beg to differ on Java, requires expertise in both the source and the target languages. And the crazy thing that came, the crazy pull away from this article is that the Commonwealth Bank of Australia had to spend three quarters of a billion dollars at $750 million over the course of five years to convert their system from COBOL to Java. Here, stateside, our own governments, state and local and federal, thank you, IRS, could have used something like this to rewrite their antiquated unemployment processing systems and stimulus check processing systems and et cetera. How many stories did we hear or read about that people who were filing first-time unemployment claims were dealing with issues when it came to the call center, when it came to websites, when it came to registering, when it came to just getting their information into the system? And how many people couldn't get their stimulus checks or hadn't gotten their stimulus checks or are now starting to get their stimulus checks with this legislation that was passed back in April and how people who are actually finally on unemployment now, and finally getting money now, are now really just going back to work because eh, ultimately the, the processing was slow. So this is a, a, an amazing feat considering that, um, you know, trans, you know, transcompiling is hard. Well, compiling in general, writing compilers in general, if, for anyone who is a pure computer scientist will tell you, is kind of a bitch. Um, and it's kind of this overall broad uh, category called program synthesis, um, which is basically um, expert systems or AI um, or you know machine learning algorithms just writing code. For those of us who are familiar with coding um, in IDEs, i.e., integrated development environments, we may have dealt we deal with something called IntelliSense. I don't know if that's a trademark name and stuff like that, but most um, IDEs have it. It's basically code completion. Like it knows that you're trying to build an if statement or a, a switch statement or a case statement. And then you can just kind of hit tab, tab, and it, it creates the structure. There's um, automated uh, deploying, deployments of frameworks uh, that build a code scaffolding for you. So you can just kind of plug and play. It just kind of builds all the fluff around it that is necessary. And this, is all, this has been since the inception of AI in the 50s considered like a holy grail for computer scientists. And the fact that the researchers over at Facebook Research, um, and as I will kind of detail later on, OpenAI's uh, attempt working with Microsoft to build even more intelligence into intelligence, it's going to do the thing of eliminating the minutia of creating software. Because part of the, it's already hard enough to architect and create software. And for some of us who um, write code today, uh, a lot of what we write is built on the, you know, on the shoulders of giants 
and or people who are artistically driven toward writing libraries, packages, etc. for us. Um, th this would basically democratize um, code creation. So let's kind of break down what was going on by kind of going into the deep, deep aspects of this story and really uh, dig into this and let's figure out how they did it. And let's figure out you know, why this is important. So Facebook's system is called Transcoder. More to meets the eye. I'm sorry, I had to do that. Um, which can translate um, C++, Java, and Python. Um, tackles the challenge with an unsupervised learning approach. Transcoder is first initialized with a cross-lingual language model, model pre-training, uh, which maps pieces of code expressing the same instruction to identical representations regardless of the programming language. So generally speaking, um, you know, input-output streams, if-then statements, the structure of um, of how you build functions versus classes versus uh, uh, what are they called and definitions versus classes versus you know the methods within those classes like every class not not to give you an object oriented programming tutorial but when you create these abstractions called classes i.e. chair or car this will use car um, there are some things that you always need. You need to be able to manipulate that class. And so there's always these mutator methods within a class or things to do to the class once you abstract it. Then it's just minutia, right? Get set, um, you know, kind of instruction sets. So it can map all these. And that mapping basically means a mask because they can look at three different code examples from C++, from Java, from Python, and run it through a what they call it an encoder and they mask out the things that are pretty um what's the word i'm looking for that are prevalent so if if statements don't change in um, language languages um for loops um don't change in languages loops in general don't change in languages some may have for loops some may have while loops but all in all like the structure of a loop is pretty much the same you're going to need a input parameter an, initial, an initialization of your iterator, i.e. how many times am I going to go through that, and your iterable object, which you have to pump into said uh, loop. Um, this is kind of in the weeds, but it's very, very important because you it, it will help you appreciate just how um, revolutionary this, uh, this thing is. Um, so, so the researchers basically trained these neural networks using all these advanced methods um uh, with a public github corpus of 2.8 million open source repositories so that's basically like you know stores of code so they just pumped through this model across all these languages just code and had it just kind of transform and 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 learn for all intents and purposes from these code bases and so basically their performance which there's a I, I have a link to a great YouTuber that actually broke down this paper. It's 45 minutes. It's pretty long. Um, it, it, it doesn't it's kind of dry in some areas, but it really kind of lets you understand that, like, it it was quite remarkable. And it does bold. Um, it, 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 it makes a huge advance in program synthesis. 
Um, so Facebook notes that while like the best performing uh, version of the transcoder didn't generate many functions strictly identical to the to the references, it tr it trans its translations had high computational accuracy, which basically meant when it was prompted to create a um, in this instance we're talking about functions, yeah, functions, classes, whatever, methods, whatever, it created them slightly better um, than bench than the benchmark. So uh, what is there? Uh, okay, so they attribute this uh, to the incorporation of a beam search, a method that maintains a set of partially decoded sequences that are uh, that are appended to form sequences and then scored so that the best sequence bubbles up to the top. Uh, just basically kind of like an iterative method to coming up with the best computationally accurate solution. And so it gives a bunch of numbers that I I can't really I still haven't, I don't quite understand, but it actually, it's basically a better metric than can be achieved um, as, as it stands with, you know, I don't know, other conventional methods. And I, I don't know what other conventional methods they're talking about. I don't know if they're talking about just expert systems and that, that, that do this type of stuff that aren't neural networks or uh, supervised uh, or, or, or some other machine learning method and stuff like that. So this is a big deal, and I ramble on and because I'm very, very excited about this. And I ramble on about this because this is kind of cool. Um, transcoder can easily be generalized to any programming language, which means you can basically run through this, find a huge corpus of data, run it through this model, and through t as time moves on, it will learn, and it will be able to transcode for all intents and purposes or transcompile, as they like to call it. So basically from the story, again, as a quote from um, I, one of the co-authors of the paper for which this is based on, um, for which this article is based on, and for which captures the research, Transcoder, again, can easily be generalized to any programming language, does not require any expert knowledge, and outperforms commercial solutions by a large margin. Our results suggest that a lot of mistakes made by the model could easily be fixed by adding simple constraints to the decoder to ensure that it, you know, that the generated functions are syntactically correct or by using dedicated architectures. So, and then to dovetail into why this is important, uh, Facebook isn't the only organization working on this. Again, OpenAI during the uh, virtual Microsoft Build Conference basically demoed a model that was trained on a GitHub uh, repository um, using English language comments to generate entire functions in code. And there's a researcher from Rice University um, who a couple years ago created Bayou, which, uh, which is able to write its own software programs by associating intents, intents, I-N-T-E-N-T-E-S, behind publicly available code. So, you know, and trying to basically gleam inference from what it sees and writing code you know, um, uh, appropriately. So that moves me on to like why this is important. So another paper that I, uh, in another article I read was about how open AI is partially, maybe reaching the limits of what it can do with its natural language processing. And so the thing about uh, why this kind of ties in to the research Facebook is doing is simply this. Programming languages 
our natural language generation. They're, you know, they're basically the NLP or the natural language processing Venn diagram of AI. One of the more difficult areas within AI. Um, I think people are slowly starting to figure out vision. I think people are slowly starting to figure out um, other um, multimodal uh, data sources. But being able to read words, yes. Interpret words, barely. Gather uh, inference from that data, from those words, harder. And reading from ZDNet, um, OpenAI's gigantic GP3, uh, which, a, uh, which is basically their natural language processing gargantuan deep learning model, hints at the limit of language models for AI. The California Research Outfit, OpenAI is back with another gigantic deep learning model, uh, GPT-3. Um, this is uh, written by uh, uh, Ty uh, Tyron, Tyron and Ray. God, people. Name your kid something. Why can't it just be Bob? God, my public school education definitely tells me when I try to read these things out loud. Um, the latest work from the team shows that OpenAI's thinking has matured in respect to uh, the GPT-3. Um, the, the thing about GPT-3 versus its couple iterations is the amount of parameters that it, it, it uses um, to basically uh, create create this model that allows it to um, generate uh, relatively fluid text um, it, it, to, you know, write articles, to read and summarize, um, you know, sentences or language as a whole. They'd be able to do translation between languages if given enough parameters. But that's the thing. These models grow bigger and bigger um, as they get better, but they're finding that there is um, there is a, a a bending of the curve, so to speak, of performance you gather as you throw more parameters at these models. So, in order to understand why this matters, all right, um, and why it's significant, uh, so the reference to the article about um, the pre-publication paper, which you have to go to archive to look at from OpenAI, detailing that. An autoregressive uh, language model with 175 billion parameters, a parameter being is a calculation in a neural network that applies greater or lesser weights to some aspect of the data to give that aspect greater and or lesser prominence in the overall calculation of the data. So with 175 billion parameters, that's, computationally, that's uh, insane. Um, a 10x more than the previous um, non-sparse language models and test this performance in a few shot setting. Basically, you only have to kind of train it a couple times as opposed to, or you really have to pre-train it a couple times as opposed to like these, you know, hundreds of epochs, i.e. shots at training it over time. Basically, has demonstrated substantial gains in many uh, ML, NLP tasks um, and benchmarks by pre-training on a large corpus of text followed by fine-tuning on a specific task. So these neural network model uh, models are based on these things called transformers. A transformer uses a function call, uh, called attention to calculate probabilities um, that will appear uh, giving the surrounding words. So basically it tries to predict, it tries to be predictive of the next word um, uh, rather than being relatively prescriptive, which is rules-based. Um, you can use multimodal methods of doing that where you use a prescriptive and a predictive model, which makes them better, but Ultimately, they're beginning to run into limitations because you can only 
in memory store so many of these weights, um, which are, are, you know, part and parcel of these parameters to continue to get you like the performance that you need. Now, that is a long way around my broader point is you may fail. These models may fail and fall on their face as we go to trillions of parameters and you eke out a little bit more performance and hardware is, is hardware and algorithms are a great limitation um, on our ability to do this. Human language is hard. Um, we can tell by today's discourse that you can say something to someone and they can completely interpret it differently than someone else. Models don't have that problem. And the one thing that is most, the most structured thing that is across all languages is structurally the same are programming languages. You learn one programming language, you understand the underlying theory behind how it interacts with hardware and software layers, i.e. operating systems and how it manages memory and yada, yada, yada. You learn its data structures. You understand its, its um, 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 functions, both built in and, and things that can be custom built, i.e. you can create functions. And you understand these rules, the prescriptive nature of programming languages, it's easier to model and or have a model learn the predictive aspects of a language. Hopefully I haven't lost you. Let me bring it back. These models will be almost godlike when it comes to generating code. As time moves on, I can see a day where these models absolutely positively produce the low level code necessary to write full software programs and that humans in this realm will more be relegated to software architecture and how that architecture interacts with hardware and to be an overall architect as a whole for an information system. What do I mean? A lot of these future architectures are information technology systems or information systems are going to be cloud-based, network-based. They will require our understanding of orchestration software like Kubernetes, Docker, where we basically spin up virtualized mini, uh, for lack of a better word, mini, what's the word? Mm, oh, microservices. Yeah, sorry. Um, and, and other things. And we will be able to glue this together, not by you know, writing long lines, long corpuses and thousand line code bases. But we will be able to, in this instance, use more of a no code environment to string together processes, to spin up processes, to bring all this together and build on a new stack. Not the TCP IP stack, not the OSI model as we have traditionally come to know and love for those of us who are network, um, who, who know networking, but from building on Azure to building, you know, on AWS and whoever steps into the cloud game going forward, we will be able to build software that writes itself by going to a higher level programming environment than writing lines of code. For those of us who are familiar with some of these no code solutions, 
um, Webflow is a company that actually allows you to just kind of build web applications by like WYSIWYG interfaces. What you see is what you get interface. So the democratizing the software, uh, like content creation can come, uh, can even go down to the mom and pop enterprise. This is ultimately the hope of no code. Um, Webflow is a company out of San Francisco that provides software as a service for website building and hosting, abstracting away all the hard stuff that you have to do when you, when you had to do this back in the day. Their online visual editor platform allows users to design, build, and launch websites. If you, any of you are familiar with uh, National Instruments LabVIEW, which is a graphical programming language and G-code under the hood, it allows you to drop these virtual instruments and or functions onto a blank canvas of a screen. And you can create very complex programs and not learn, not know a whole lot about underlying computer science and software architecture as a whole. Now, as you build bigger and bigger, more robust programs, that stuff becomes a lot more important to understand. And you can get super deep into LabVIEW, um, even down to calling um, .NET libraries and, and interacting with the operating system and having to understand, you know, constructor methods and passing in parameters and stuff like that. But that's all to say that, like, that all can be done visually. I can envision a day where someone comes up with another high-level programming language, or even, dare I say it, if they can even get it working, a natural language processing, uh, a natural language processing uh, computer programming language where you literally type out what the program needs to do and your ML, AI ML models go out and generate code and you basically stress test and unit test that code either by running it through your, running it through your own unit testing or you build basically ML machine learning uh, GAN, which is basically um, these adversarial networks um, that basically, in, for lack of a better word, are designed to interrogate your code and to pump that back into the model so said model will make corrections, i.e. debugging. I can see things like debugging becoming much, much more robust um, going forward. This is important in a lot of different, in a lot of ways, because it's getting to the point and gone will be the days of having to write low level, not necessarily low level code, but like low level code in a sense, not like assembly or, or machine code, but low level code in the sense that like, I don't have to write this function, kind of like the way programming works today. Like someone has obviously created a library or a package to do X. Well, I shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, common code libraries the reusability, which is the promise of object-oriented programming, the ability to extend classes and stuff like that. All these things will become much more democratized. It'll make it much, much easier if one simply can download and run an ML model that can write me a Hello World code, code base, or a uh, Fibonacci sequence, or you name it. These things... Are going to be transformative in, in ways that we have yet to realize. So the, the reason why, like I said, these two stories, as I bring them together, become important is while most of these machine learning models 
that have grown, these deep learning models and neural networks have grown in size and are not giving us, are giving us diminishing returns on being good old, you know, being able to do the things that we wanted it to do, like in her or in 2001, A Space Odyssey or yada, yada, yada. We can take these massive models and we can take the research that's being done at Facebook um, research in their AI division at OpenAI at Microsoft. And we can apply it to making de software development one of those jobs that may morph and might even go the way of the dodo bird. That's an extreme example, but it's very, very important. It's, it's excites me more than what seems to be going on today. It's of huge importance. And if one could put these models on programming languages that don't change much when it comes to ultimately the, stru the, the structure, their syntax, right? The syntax is actually very, um, for, for very static, at least when it comes to the built-in functions of a language. Um, Python 3, Python 2, and Python 1, synta synta uh, from, a, from a syntax standpoint, don't change a lot. How you do things may change a little bit. How more efficient it is may change a little bit between versions of a programming language. But the syntax is pretty much always the same. I mean, not the, you know, it doesn't morph a lot. And a lot of low-level stuff can be written. Um, you know, functions and things can be written that are native to the language that can allow a program or a machine learning algorithm to do it. So I, uh, I'm excited. I saw these stories today. I saw these stories over the course of the week. And, you know, you're trying to just kind of wade through the minutia of all the activism that's going on. But in, but in the meanwhile, um, it's, we're seeing more software startups out here that may not necessarily need CS majors or graduate PhDs to work and run them. Because if we can teach this next generation of software entrepreneur to deal with the orchestration of ML models to build information systems across cloud infrastructures like Azure or AWS or Google Cloud, then this is very democratizing. It's actually, dare I say, it even has a liberty angle. Um, but that, that's my thoughts on that. The future is being built. I've taken, two, I've taken these two stories and kind of put them together to kind of let you in on my thinking about how the future of software will be, particularly software engineering. Um, there's some show notes down there that link to, um, you know, a program synthesis uh, definition, some research, a research paper from Microsoft Research about program synthesis and what they what they hope to do and how they hope to incorporate a lot of that this technology into their products. You have uh, the demo video from um, OpenAI where the OpenAI uh, machine learning algorithm generates Python code. That's very interesting. Um, and then you, you kind of get, you know, then you kind of get the, uh, the, the idea that, that this will lead to a no code revolution where any mom and pop or anyone doing an online business or anything like that will be able to generate their own source code. Like, you know, 
I need my Excel spreadsheets to talk to my accounting software, which talks to my point of sale software. And I need those things to generate reports and file my taxes with the state or anything like that. These things can be written um, in a lot of things from Webflow to, um, to Fluid, which is a, which is a uh, product that Microsoft pushes. And it's getting more and more to the point where you're not going to need your dedicated, fresh out of college, software engineer, writing, you know, silliness. Another big area where this is going to be very, very important is these models in all realms of AI require tremendous amounts of data. And that tremendous amount of data needs to be, um, um, we called wrangled, i.e. Um, it needs to be like ingested and um, reduced. So you get a, a data dump from a sensor and, and now you must wrangle that data so that it is in a form that an ML model can then ingest and then do inference on that data. So that stuff is going, this is where this, these, I think these ML models, as they kind of start moving into products and are deployed and we start seeing more source code out there on GitHub, people are going to use this for data wrangling of the massive amounts of data in the data science industry as a whole that needs to be cleaned before it is passed on to machine learning models. So this is exciting stuff, great stuff. Check out uh, the show notes and the videos that kind of give a better breakdown of this than I, I, I attempted to, but I'm just trying to grab these. I just taking these two stories, putting them together and telling you this is the future we need to build, not tear it out. All right, rant over. I'm done for the week. Hopefully next week we'll have Gary. I keep promising it, but I'm, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see. But hey, thank you for logging in to thank you for your servers. I am Thaddeus Preston, AKA Nick Way, and this has been an MLGA podcast. See you later.